Welcome back, everybody, to the Greg McEwen podcast. I am here with you on this journey to learn, to grow, so that we can accomplish our highest contribution in life, our mission in life. Along the way, one of the things I have learned is that if we only focus on performing, our performance suffers. That idea is not new to me, but that precise language is from Eduardo Breseno. He's our guest today in part one of a two-part interview. Before Eduardo became an author, a TED speaker, a thought leader in his own rights, his life was totally changed, as was mine, by the research of Carol Dweck. Carol Dweck is currently a professor at Stanford and formerly of Columbia, who is best known for the growth mindset. That idea that intelligence itself is not fixed, that it can grow, that we can become more intelligent after years of helping to take those ideas out into the world, out into organizations. Eduardo is on his own journey, and it's a journey that he's inviting us to go on. By the end of today's episode, you will be able to grow your skill level and your output simultaneously and for the long term. Let's get to it. It's such a delight to see this podcast growing, reaching ever more people. It's now consistently right at the top of the education podcasts in America, at the very top of the self-improvement podcasts. And that's because of you. And I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast if you're new to it, and to bring other people along with you on this journey. Eduardo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Greg. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Are you right that it's one of the biggest lies we tell ourselves? The harder you work, the better you'll do. But a lot of the time, working harder doesn't yield better results. It just leaves us exhausted. Why is that? Well, you've written quite a bit about that, and I've learned a lot about that too from you. So thank <laughs> you for your work on that. But what I realized at some point is I was working really, really hard and thinking that was the path to learning and improvement and success. And what I was missing, and I've realized a lot of people are missing, is that there's two different forms of effort. There's effort to perform and execute and get things done, and effort to learn and to discover and to connect. And I call those the performance zone and the learning zone. And they're both really important. And I think a lot of us get stuck in our to-do list, in our busyness, in just getting things done as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. And that leads to, to stagnation. Yeah, I love this. It sounds so simple, but this idea of there being a learning zone and a performance zone, and that if you spend too much time in the performance zone, then you think you're going to increase productivity over time, but you're not getting better at your craft, whatever that craft is. Am I understanding it right? Absolutely. And that's what I call the performance paradox, that if we focus only on performing, our performance suffers. It's counterintuitive, but it, it is the case. You know, we get myopic thinking into just what's in front of us, and we miss out on discovering better ways of achieving our most important goals. Yeah, I see it in my mind as some kind of figure eight where 
depending, you could have like a tiny first sphere and then the second sphere is massive because you're constantly just in execution mode, doing mode, activity mode, action mode. What's the right balance in your research? Is it 50-50? Like how does somebody figure out the optimal, the optimal level? Well, yeah, there's the idea of alternating between the two zones. And then there's the idea of doing both together. And, and, and I think for most of us, we can get things done in a way that's also going to lead to improvement. So when you look at what's going on in the brains of people when they're problem solving, for example, for some people, they their brain is paying attention only to the things they get they do right. They feel good when they get things done right. So when they're getting information that they get this problem right, that's what they're most interested in. That's what the, the blood flow and the electricity in the brain is happening. And their brain is not active at a different time, which is when the, the people who improve, they pay attention to whether they got this problem right or wrong, but they pay even more attention when they make mistakes and when they're getting information about what they did wrong and they think about what they did wrong. And because of that, then you can see that in the subsequent problems, they're more successful. So they're more successful. Everybody, if you look at everybody from the outside, they're just solving problems, but what's happening in their brain is different. And so as we go about our days, we can spend the vast majority of your time to ask your, to answer your question. I think for most of us, 80% of our time, 90% of our time, we can be getting things done, but when we're surprised by something, we can pay attention to it. When we make a mistake, we can pay attention to it. We can solicit feedback, you know, to, to get feedback on our work and our behavior. We can always be trying something different, not just doing the same thing in the same way. And that's what I call learning while doing. And for most of us, in most of our context, that's the case. If you look at some crafts, like if you're a professional athlete or a, a Cirque du Soleil performer, then you can separate those two zones a lot more. You have a very clear pure performance zone and a very mm -hmm. clear pure learning zone. Mm -hmm. and, and you would think in those crafts that the people who engage in deliberate practice or the learning zone eight on, or 12 hours a day are the best. But actually the research shows that in those fields, you know, the best in the world engage in deliberate practice only between two and five hours a day. So it's not like you want to maximize the amount of time in the learning zone. You actually need rest. You need to explore new things. You need to play. You need to connect with other people. And that not only fosters joy in our life, but also in fosters both learning and performing. When you were at Stanford, you met the psychology professor, Carol Dweck. Can you tell me about how that impacted you? It seems to have had a disproportionate impact on the trajectory and direction of your life and career. Absolutely. It was completely life-changing for me. First, because I read her book, I, I learned about her work. This was two, a, a year after she first uh, published her book, Mindset. And in reading her book, I learned about growth mindset and fixed mindset. A growth mindset is a belief that people can change, that our abilities and qualities are things we can develop over time. And a fixed mindset is the belief that people are either natural or something, or you're inept and you can't change that. And I realized that I was in a fixed mindset in many ways, in many parts of my life, and that I realized how that was preventing me from being from growing more, from experiencing less anxiety, from connecting more with people, reacting less defensively to feedback. And so that was life, that in itself was life changing to me. But also, I ended up co founding an organization with Carol called Mindset Works that we focus on building growth mindset cultures in schools, helping schools foster cultures of learning. And I led that organization for over 10 years. And 
over time in in evangelizing a growth mindset and how important that was, there was more and more interest in me doing speaking, which is something I would have never thought I would end up doing because I grew up as a very strong introvert. Mm. And so this opportunity with Carol and then the opportunity to start doing public speaking and the surprise that I enjoyed it and I could be, you know, be effective and people appreciated it was life changing as well. And that's what I do now full time. And then, you know, also kind of an opportunity to write a book a couple of years ago. And that was also completely unexpected. So my life has changed in many unexpected ways. And Carol was uh, key on that in terms of opening that opportunity and then uh, working with her and working really hard, both in the learning zone and the performance zone with her. Tell me more about the moment itself. Like what was the context that meant you were so open to a new idea? I'm reading into your story that it may have been quite a painful period of time and you're looking for an answer and suddenly you know, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Was it like that or was it somehow different? There was a specific moment when I was, before I went to grad school, I was working in venture capital in Silicon Valley on 3000 Sand Hill Road, beautiful place, you know, <laughs> my office with a mahogany desk. And I know I thought, all of these places really well. I know everything yeah. you're describing well. And it's, I came from Venezuela. I never thought I would live outside Venezuela. Just the fact that I was doing this was amazing to me. but. I, one evening I was working later than usual and I was angry at something and I did something that I had never done before and have never done since. I started taking it out on the keyboard. I was working and I started just continuing my work, but hitting my keyboard. Like <laughs> just hammering hard. the keyboard. Yeah. And I was hitting the keyboard and my thumb started hurting, which was weird, but I didn't think much about it because I was used to working through pain. I had gone and used to just sacrifice and just working really hard to perform at my best. But the pain the next day was worse. My forearm was flaring and it got worse over the next couple of weeks. And over time, I started becoming concerned when doctors couldn't diagnose me and it was getting worse. And I, 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 I met people with my same condition who couldn't use their hands for more than 10 minutes a day. And wow. that freaked me out because I was only 27 years old. I didn't know how to do anything without my hands. If I became unable to work, how was I going to pay the bills for the rest of my life? And I realized then that there was a lot of changes that I had to make on my life. First, you know, I needed to figure out how to heal what how to get diagnosed. It was something called myofascial pain syndrome at the end that it, and it, it required a lot of work. Like when I was going to Stanford, I was, I was stretching for an hour and a half every day. I was using speech recognition and I did this for three years just to heal and getting some special treatments. I went to DC for six weeks to get a special treatment called dry needling. But I realized I needed to change all these things about how I was living and my, you know, my nutrition, my sleep, my exercise. But I also realized that I couldn't take my hands for granted. And I, I thought at the time, I realized that I'm not really doing anything that's changing anybody else's life. There was so much capital in the industry, in the venture capital industry at the time, that I felt that whether I was working there or not, these great companies were going to get funded anyway. Yeah. And I didn't have great experiences and expertise to be advising these CEOs that I was supposedly advising. But in reality, I was just repeating what I heard from other investors, you know, not understanding what was good, at, why that was good advice. So I felt very inauthentic that was creating stress for me. And that's what led me to, to want to go to 
uh, grad school is I thought I need to be a better steward of my life. I need to feel like I'm making good use of my time on earth. So that was the first moment of realizing I need to make a lot of changes in my life. And then at Stanford, I was exploring lots of ideas around social entrepreneurship and education. And Carol was looking for somebody with a business background to start an organization to help bring a growth mindset out into the world. And so it was kind of meeting with her and, and another common friend now, Steve Goldman, in her office and talking about her work. And then we started meeting every two weeks for me to learn more about her work and for us to develop our vision together and see if, if it was something that we wanted to do together. And that was more of a gradual process. But I would, you know, from learning about her work from that moment, it was something that I realized, wow, like this can be really life changing for me and for many people. Yeah, like a disaster is a terrible thing to waste. And when we hit these catastrophic moments in our lives, even if the catastrophe isn't a single thing, but is these multiple overlapping issues, which is what it sounds like in your case, it is a forcing function for us to seriously learn. Uh, even in, let's call it the preamble of this conversation, you illustrated the idea that we only learn when we experience some kind of failure. And I mean, that's sort of literally true that expectation failure is the only time in which we learn because what we expected to happen doesn't happen. And therefore there is a gap and therefore there is something, a question, something to deal with. And if the expectation failure is painful enough, then there is a tremendous opportunity. And we might not seek those tremendous opportunities in our lives, but nevertheless, it seems like that's what leads to transformative learning moments. And that seems to be what happened to you. What did I get wrong? This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I would agree completely with you. Looking back at that period, at the time, it felt to me like the worst thing that could be happening to me. Like everything was going so well and all of a sudden I'm risking not having my hands. And I thought that was a horrible thing. And looking back, I realized it was such a great thing because I am in such a better place now. For one thing, I, if I had stayed on that path, I probably would have ended up with a heart attack in my fifties, you know, Mm. but so let alone the health, but just the experience of life of feeling a, a sense of meaning and purpose is right now. And so many things feeling like they're, I'm really at a much deeper level of happiness. And that wouldn't have happened without that crisis. And what I wonder is, so, so that has happened a few times, right? The things that have, that have been crisis have really come with some really great lessons. And uh, one, one way that a, a mentor of mine, Chip Conley, talks about that is like, what is this challenge trying to teach me, you know, and he tries to figure out what is this challenge trying to teach me? And I love that question. But what I also wonder, is it possible sometimes for us to learn these lessons without having to go through the crisis? And I don't have a definitive answer on that. I hope the answer is yes. I think we can seek a state of mind and heart that something like brokenness, right? You know, broken heart, contrite spirit, open mind, We can choose that. I believe that. And if we don't choose it, eventually it gets chosen for us. But it's a cheaper way to learn if we can get into that state without life requiring it of us. I love that you mentioned Chip Conley. I had him on the podcast here, 84, for those that that want to go back and listen to that conversation about the great midlife edit that we talked about when we last had him on here. Let's go back to this core structure. You talk about it in a TED talk that you gave that's called How to Get Better at the Things You Care About. Can you talk more about what you shared in that talk about these two types of learning and how they work together and how important they both are? Absolutely. Yeah, we sometimes tend to think that the reason somebody becomes great at something is because they spend a lot of time doing that thing. And that's why they become so good. So if a tennis player is fantastic at what they do, it's because they have spent, you know, 10,000 hours or however many hours playing tennis. And what the research shows is that's not true. The reason somebody becomes great at playing tennis is because they spend a good amount of time doing something very different from playing tennis. So when you have an athlete working to win a match, they're in a tournament, which is when we see them, they're trying to do the moves they already know well. They're trying to avoid mistakes, which means they're gonna try to not do those moves that they're having trouble with. And they're just trying to win and they're trying to minimize mistakes. That's what they call the performance zone. And then after the game though, what we don't see, right, is they go to their coach and they say, coach, I have to work on this move that I was trying to avoid during the match. Now this is what I want I need to work on right now. And that's a very different activity, very different level of attention that we do during the performance zone. And what we, what most of us get caught up in life is just we're always performing, right? We're always trying to do the things that we know work well or that we do best trying to minimize mistakes. And that leads to stagnation. And something that confuses us is that 
trying to do an activity, just a performance zone, does work to improve when we're novices. When we're just getting started at something, I've never played tennis before, I'm just gonna go play with a friend. Like in that match, I'll get better because I'm so bad. I don't need great learning strategies. And part of what we're doing is just being playful and seeing whether this is an activity that I would enjoy. But once we become proficient, then we might be putting a lot of effort but we're putting a lot of effort into performing. We're not getting better. And then that fosters a fixed mindset because I'm trying hard, I'm not getting better. And that means I get the, the, the belief that I can't get better when the reality is that I'm not engaging in the effective strategies to improve, which are the learning zone. Yeah, I love that idea. I've been doing this, I've been doing this, I've been doing this, I'm not getting better at it. I mean, what kinds of things could listeners or viewers of this conversation be experiencing that frustration in? Yeah, so getting stuck, right? Be feeling that I'm not having any breakthroughs in terms of innovation, in terms of improvement. I'm not, our team is not finding more and more effective ways to work together. If I'm frustrated by our meetings, you know, I continue being frustrated by our meetings and we're not figuring out how can we make better use of our meetings so that, and uh, whatever, working, you know, the, our collaboration so that we feel that like we're being more and more effective over time. And with a fast pace of change, we might feel a threat that we might be left behind, right? That, oh my gosh, this, these fast things are happening and we're being left behind because we're not sure exactly how to respond and how to drive change and be ahead of change. Yeah, and just maybe any anything that matters that you've been doing for a long time, but still feel like you're getting a B grade in. So it could be a relationship at work. It could be a particular area of your profession. Public speaking comes to mind. People do it for years and years and years, but they plateau at some point and they're not getting any better at it. So, oh, yes, you've, done, you've been married for 20 years, for 30 years, but you're not great at this yet. And this seems to be the kind of frustration that you're trying to address, unless I'm missing something with this idea of the two types of work, learning and then the performance. Yes? Absolutely. We sometimes, like you're saying, get caught up in our mid-level goals and we lose sight of our highest level goals, the things that we care most about. And so if we think about what do I care most about and write that down and think about Am I regularly engaging in the learning zone with regards to this, as you suggest, is something to think about. You give an example of Demosthenes. Can you tell us about him and how these different zones applied to the work that he was doing? Absolutely. Demosthenes was a, a Greek orator and lawyer, and he was the best of his time. And we might think that he might become a great lawyer and orator because he had a lot of experience. You know, sometimes we confuse experience with expertise, that if you have a lot of years doing something, then you'll become great. But the way he became great was not just by doing his job a lot. Uh, he did, he was very creative. He did things like he had a, a bad habit of lifting a shoulder and he wanted to get rid of that habit. So he went into his basement and put a, hung a sword from the ceiling as he practiced in front of a mirror, his speeches. And whenever his, he would raise his shoulder, it would hurt. He had a lisp, so he put rocks inside of his mouth in order to be articulate and to be clear with in, in a challenging way that helped him be clear. The courtrooms at the time were 
out in the open with lots of people watching. So they're very loud. So they would, he would go practice by the ocean where it was really loud to try to speak, project, practice projecting his voice. So these are, are all activities that are very different from just kind of doing your job, right? And the key is for us to think about, like we develop experience through the performance zone mainly, but we develop expertise through the learning zone. We get experience through the performance zone. We get expertise from the learning zone. Is that right? Exactly. That's exactly right. We Exactly right. And so that's why you can have young kids who have great expertise because they've developed a lot. In, they've, they've, you engage in the learning zone very effectively, but they have very little experience. And then you can have people with a lot of experience who you know, are, are mediocre what they do because they haven't developed those learning zone habits. What are practical things people can do if they want to gain greater mastery in something that really matters to them, something that's essential to them, that they've been doing for a long time but have not seen improvement in recently? Well, a couple of things. First, we can get clarity around what is essential, what is most important to us, and what is most important for us to improve. So for me, I have a one-page uh, paper that shows what's important to me in my life. And mm. then, you know, every three months or so, I look at it and I think about what do I want to work on? What do I want to improve? And how So what's on your list right now? What, if we had that yeah. piece of paper, what would we be looking at? Yeah, so right, well, at the very center of that paper is happiness, fulfillment, and appreciation. That's what I care most about in my life. And, and it's really happiness, but the fulfillment and appreciation is, is like the type of happiness that I'm looking for. And then there are things there like connection with my spouse is contributions to others, creation, invention, you know, the, like a nurturing home, right? What I, else is on the piece of paper? Oh, I mean, there's different layers. So it's the very center of it is the highest level goal, which is happiness. And then around it, th there's maybe like eight or nine goals around it, like mm -hmm. a grounded financial situation. Learning and growth is definitely part of it. A contribution to others. And then underneath that, like further from the, from from the, the center... Core. Mm -hmm. There, there is, again, the how. So you move away from the center by asking how, you move toward the center by asking why. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of contributing to others, you know, if you move further out from the center, there might be, you know, contributing to reducing unconscious biases and unconscious, like, you know, inequitable systems. And so if you go, like, further out, there might be, how do I want to do that? I want to do that by, you know, hiring people from underrepresented groups by connecting people from under, underrepresented groups to, to resources. And so it's, it's about, and that's actually in a, in a different page, but in the, in that one page is the highest level goals. Where do and you so, keep your page? I, I keep it in my computer. I don't keep it. Yeah. yeah I don't keep it in a, any particular place. Do you have something similar? I have lots of things a little ironically, but, but yes, I understand just what you're describing. Okay. So you review this quarterly. That's good. Personal quarterly offsite. Totally in favor of that. And then from there, you're trying to identify a, a gap in one of the areas. Yeah. And I also talk about it with my wife, you know, regularly. So we like to go hiking. And so we talk about how we're doing in both well, in our relationship, but also in other parts of our lives and how we can support each other. And so we, whether it is something there or something related to my work, I'm always working on one thing. And so I, I, I have a morning habit, which is really important to me. And as part of that habit, I remind myself what it is kind of the one thing that I'm working to improve on. And so that habit of identifying what am I working to improve proactively and 
having the habit of reminding myself what that is in the morning. I think it's really important because it primes a growth mindset, it primes a learning zone, and it helps us pay attention to those opportunities to improve during the day. And what's your one area of improvement right now? What I'm trying to do is to say yes slower because I just released a book and a lot of things are coming my way and it's <laughs> exciting things and I get excited about things and I get excited about getting engaged in a lot of things. And so my initial reaction is yes. And so I need to pause and engage my reason rather than emotions to then really think about whether you know there are things that I want to say yes to. So that's because of my particular situation right now, that is something that, that I'm working on. So it's a specific and uh, a great example of the paradox of success that you're describing. If you write a book and then you're launching a book and then the book is successful, it means, of course, first of all, there's a whole flurry of requests, podcast interviews and articles that ought to be written and social media posts that need to be put out and then requests to give keynotes and training and so on. And to top it all off, it's not just that the number of requests have increased, it's that the relevance of all of those requests have increased because they're all pinpointed on exactly the subject you want to be speaking about and teaching about and impacting about. That's why you wrote the book. You think this is a solution to problems you see in the world. So you have a double whammy of requests because in your previous life, you'd have said yes to every single one of them. And so if you're not careful now, you'll be buried in all of these good new options and opportunities and fall into the undisciplined pursuit of more. Okay, so. You, you clearly have been in this situation before. And <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. And something that helps me is that I have been, because I've been very focused on the book, I have been under under investing and under engaging in my marriage. And I want to have more time on my marriage. And that's the most important thing for me. And so it's also working to improve and in spending time, quality time with my wife. And so that helps me also be much more selective around the things that I say yes to. Yeah. So that may be your primary why for saying no to things you would otherwise have been saying yes to is because now the burden has shifted where you have so many more relevant opportunities professionally that if you're not careful, if you use the same criteria you used to, then your whole life will get out of whack and you'll be investing so much more in a professional world. And suddenly the person who matters far more to you, but hasn't changed in their need or their dynamic, they're not suddenly asking 10 times more of you in the same way that the profession is. And so everything can get out of balance. What is something from this conversation with Eduardo that stands out to you? What is one thing that you can do differently immediately because of this episode? And who is somebody that you can share this with? Remember that for the first person who writes a review of this episode on Apple Podcasts, you'll be able to access the Essentialism Academy for a whole year for free. Just go to gregmcewan.com forward slash essential for details. Thank you. Really, thank you. And I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, 
and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.